I'm starting a series on Joseph today. And uh, I told a couple of people, my wife, for one thing, I, my wife on Fridays and Saturdays usually just gets a huge earful of whatever's in my mind. And um, I've told you guys before, like you get basically a third of the sermon that I've prepared every time I stand in front of you. And for some of you, you think that's amazing because I'm long-winded as it is. And, uh, but, but she gets just this enormous glut. It's like an auctioneer is just announcing all of these things to her in the car. And last night as we, we ran out to grab something to eat, I was telling her that, you know, I, I prepare for Sundays on Mondays. And, and I prepared, I had this whole sermon laid out and it was, it was what it was. I don't know if it was good or bad. I guess that's up to y'all, but I was done anyway. Um, and then Friday afternoon, God just sort of started to speak to me. And I came back to the text and I started to look again. And then yesterday for several hours, I just felt like there was more that I needed to say up front. And so I haven't taken away anything from the back end. It's just gonna have to be next week and the week after that we kind of get to that stuff. There's something I wanna say very specific this morning, but it is a part of my introduction on Joseph. In Acts chapter seven, if you wanna turn there. So I, I wanna start our journey in Joseph's life in the book of Acts instead of Genesis. Because I think there's two things that we have to see if we want to actually understand Joseph's life. And so what I'm gonna tell you this morning is this. God is with us and God is working. God is with us and God is working. Those are the two points, that's it. Spoiler, there you go. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen is about to give this speech. Stephen is sort of this heavy hitter in the early church. So he's not one of the 12 disciples, but he quickly becomes a leader in the early church. So much so that he's speaking the word of truth and he's, and he's seeing miracles take place when he preaches and when he lays hands on people and prays. And so Stephen starts to raise the ire of the temple professionals at that time. And so they haul him out in the street and they say, you're talking about our temple, you're talking about our system, you're talking about our religion, and we're not gonna let it go on anymore. Can I tell you something? When religion starts to get shaken up, people start to get angry. That's why some of y'all are angry at me right now. That's all right. I still love y'all. When religion starts to get shaken, people start to get angry because people like their systems more than they like intimacy with the Spirit of God. Systems can be controlled by people, but intimacy is passion. See, I'll do things for my wife and my kids that I won't do for you, okay? You call me up tomorrow night, three o'clock in the morning, and tell me you've had a bad dream. I might not even answer, but I'm sure not gonna go get you a cup of water, drive to your house, and then give it to you and you know, pat your head while you go back to sleep. I'll do that at my house. I ain't doing it at yours, all right? I love you, but there are certain privileges that come with intimacy, Stephen had intimacy with the spirit of God, not religion. He didn't have a system. He didn't care about a system. He cared about the spirit of God moving in his life moment by moment. And that had led to amazing and miraculous things taking place in his ministry. And so they drug him out in the street and they said, we're gonna kill you. So they picked up rocks and they were gonna stone him. And they said, would you like to make a last word? Would you like to say something in your defense? Would you like to recant or would you like to beg for our forgiveness or what do you wanna do? And so Stephen launches into this long tirade about how they're all hard-hearted and stiff-necked just like their granddaddies were. And that's why God was angry with them too. <laughs> that's, that's gumption there, friends. When they got the stones in their hands and you're willing to say that, that's gumption, friends. 
But what he says in verses 9 and 10 is interesting because he walks through Israel's history or at least the parts of it that he wants to walk through. And he says this, and the patriarchs, in verse 9, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Say those words, but God was with him. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. It, it occurred to me as I was reading and studying over the last couple of weeks, trying to get my mind refocused on Joseph and his life, that the one thing that made the most difference in Joseph's life was not his cunning or his intelligence. It wasn't just that he was a good manager. It, it, was, it wasn't that he was handsome. And the Bible tells us that he was, he was a real looker. Dude was hot, all right? But those weren't the things that made his life, that sustained his life. It was the fact that God was with him. It was the presence of God in the place of struggle that allowed Joseph's life not to end in a cistern in the wilderness, but led him all the way from rejection by his own family, all the way to being the second most important person in the entire known world. It was the fact that God was with him. Stephen says this prophetically under the anointing and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, the thing that made the difference in Joseph's life was the fact that God was with him. And it got me thinking, and this is, I just want to build this out because I think it's important. We'll be in Genesis 50, 20 in just a second. Some of y'all know that one by heart. But it, it makes all the difference in the world to us if we believe God is with us. The Christian life is a different experience when we start talking about the God who is with us. Because when we start talking about the God who is with us, then we start talking about the God who loves us. And when we start talking about the love of God toward us and in our life, it changes the way that we actually live. See where I'm coming from? See, the love of God cannot be separated from the presence of God in our lives, which means that we need to know that the presence of God is with us so the love of God can transform us. There's this verse in Revelation 21 that I love. Revelation 21.3. It's a shocking verse that's going to create a little bit of theological frustration for some of you because you're going to think that that's not right, but it's actually God who says it. So there's this throne at the center of creation. There's this throne that the Bible talks about that is at the center of everything that is good and everything that is loving and everything that is powerful and everything that is merciful and everything that is creative. There's a throne in the middle of heaven. There's a throne that is the very emanating point, the epicenter of all that has ever been created. And from that throne only comes good. And the Bible says in Revelation 21.3 that from that throne something thunders outward. And it's this statement, God himself says this. He says, and the dwelling place of God is with man. Listen to that. The dwelling place of God is with you. Listen to what I'm saying. Not a church building, not just your devotional closet, not those moments when you got it right or got it wrong, but child of God, his house is you. He chose you to be the place that he wants to live. You don't believe me? Go to John 15. It says, abide in me and I'll abide in you. Uh, th this is a mutual relationship that we have. This is a cohabitation that God wants to work with us. And, and I want you to hear me. You are the place God wants to live. 
God is, I believe God ordained the building of this building, all these buildings on this campus, I do. Because we're going to use them for his glory and his honor. But God doesn't dwell here. God doesn't dwell in brick and mortar and wood, pews and carpet. God doesn't live in material things. God lives with his people. God dwells with his people. And in fact, what he says is, is that the place that I want to be, the place I want to call home is you. Now, here's, here's where we get pushback. I believe anyway. Some of us struggle with this because we don't feel very much like a place that God wants to be. You don't have to raise your hand for that, but I know that some of you feel that way. You don't feel worthy of that. Okay. You don't feel like your life emulates the kind of place that God actually wants to reside and dwell in tabernacle. Can I tell you, when I'm talking about God dwelling with you, God making you his home, I'm talking about the one that James says, out of this God, the only thing that comes from him is good. There is no variance in him. There is no shadow in him. The only things that come from this God is good. And that source of all goodness in the world wants to come live in your life, wants to be with you and present in you and with you and near you. Some of you think that he shows up on Sundays because you show up on Sundays. Some of you are real spiritual and you don't have to work late. You show up on Wednesdays because you think he's still here. He's with you. I know this is simple. You know what the Lord told me last night? I don't say that very often either. I, I don't. I don't throw that terminology around at all. Last night, because I was struggling with this idea that, that I was saying something so remarkably simple. Can I tell you, one of the insecurities of my life is that I want you to think I'm smart. <laughs> the things that I say, I want you to think to yourself, I haven't thought of that. That's neat. That's interesting. He's smarter than I am in this area. It's not true. I just want to think that. And so I was, I mean, really, as I'm pushing back on God, like, this is such a simple idea that you've given me to talk about. I had so much, so many more, you know, complicated things to talk about, things that I thought were better, things that really made a bigger impact in my life. And, and, but this is what you want me to say, really? This is what you're compelling me to say? And God told me this. He said, most of us, talking about us, not talking about him, that most of us don't need to hear new things all the time. We need to be reminded of the things that we want to ignore. See, can I tell you that there's transformation in the word that God has already given you, but most of us push it to the side because we don't either like it or we struggle to believe it, and so we don't let it affect our lives or influence our hearts. Some of us have been ignoring things that God said that could have transformed our very life. Amen. Yeah, that's God's word that does that. And we push it to the side because we're either insecure or don't want to do the work that, that it's going to require. Some of y'all know that feeling, right? God gives you something, God speaks to you, and you think, well, maybe a few years from now, God, that's not me right now. I can't give that up. I can't give up chocolate. I can't fast. You know, can't give up television. I've got to be addicted to a political party, whatever the case may be. You say, I can't give that up right now, God. Yeah, that's fine. I'll walk all over your feet if I need to. God says, I am with you. And if you can start to believe that moment by moment, then your life will not be the same. The afflictions that you experience will not be experienced the same way. The difficulties that you encounter will not become difficulties. There will be things that you realize I'm working through because my presence is with you through it all.
Stephen says that God was with him, and so he was rescued out of his afflictions. It didn't say he didn't go through his afflictions. It said he was rescued out of his afflictions because the presence of God was with him. Can I tell you something that matters? Let's say it this way. <laughs> Friday evening, we had a birthday party for my daughter. Her birthday's in May. This is the kind of people we are. <laughs> had my birthday on time, just not hers. Now, we finally got a chance to get settled enough and, and, and lost up a pool, and so, so we had some people come over. And I realized for the three or four hours we were outside sitting around, we had grilled some stuff and people were eating, and um, a single mosquito that can't be killed can change your evening from pleasurable to infinitely frustrating. You let that one mosquito that's just real shifty and you can't quite slap it and man, it can take off. It, it gets its blood and then it rolls out quick and you think, oh, I missed it again. And if it hounds you for three or four hours on a Friday evening, suddenly what you remember about that night is that mosquito and not everything else. A mosquito can ruin your life. And in South Carolina, you better work through that because honestly... We have an abundance of them here. It occurred to me, as I was thinking back through this last night then, if one mosquito, if my awareness of that one mosquito, for some of you just insert yellow jacket or spider, whatever you need to insert, if that one thing can ruin my life because I can't get rid of it, how much more can a constant awareness of the presence of the sovereign creator God transform and bless my life if I never stop being aware of his presence. If a mosquito can ruin your Friday night, God can make it. Come on now. But we forget that he is with us. In fact, we don't even structure our life so that we think he's with us. We structure our life to forget everything important in life. We turn things on that distract us all the time. We want to hear that song. We want to watch that show. Tony, I'm not talking to you. I know you binge watch something on Saturday. It's okay. I had no idea. I wasn't not preaching to you, brother. I'll tell you. We all do it. <laughs> Maybe not in another language. That, that's, that's, a new, that's a new height. But we, dis, we design our lives. I'm just talking from my heart this morning because honestly, I, I've got... Plenty of things to say. It's going to sound like I'm having a conversation with you, but I believe God is speaking to you right now. I believe some of you are hearing more than your face is letting on because I believe God has anointed and ordained this moment for this very purpose. Like I said, I had really deep things to say theologically about the text, but God wanted me to say this, and so somebody's going to get something out of this. We have designed our lives so that we're distracted constantly, which means we can never land our focus on the very one who can actually transform, sustain, and save our lives. Joseph. His life was saved because God was with him. Stephen tells us this. Because God was with him. And so if we're going to be the home of God, we want to reflect the heart of God. And this is where I'm getting back to now. But we can't begin to reflect the heart of God until we truly believe that we actually are the home of God. This is a circle. I'm going to say that again because that was complicated. If we want... If we're going to be the home of God, then we have to reflect the heart of God, okay? 
But we can't begin to reflect the heart of God until we truly believe that we are actually the home of God. And so I'm here to tell you, don't let your doubts and don't let the enemy of your heart convince you that God only moves in nice houses. Y'all are getting a slightly different version of me this morning, so it's all right. I rewrote Romans 5.8 last night. You know what Romans 5.8, for God shows his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. But as I was thinking through this idea of God moving into a house that doesn't look like a house that God would want to live in, I, I rewrote it this way. God's love for us is seen in this. While our house was in a shambles and after it had been condemned by the city, Jesus bought it way over market value because he saw the true worth of the place was only going to be realized when the right owner moved in and showed the world the beauty of the original design. <laughs> Jesus said, I want your house. I don't care if the beds aren't made and I don't care if there's laundry on the floor. Worship. He said, I see how the foundation is crumbling and I see how the walls are falling apart. I see the, dis the destruction that has come against you. I see where the storms have ripped shingles off the roof. I see where the structure that you are trying desperately with all of your strength just to keep in place. I see it. I see that it's broken down. I see that it's not like you want it to be, but I want it. I want that to be my house. I want to be with you because you're my dwelling place. And the beauty of it is, is that I remember back before. I remember before sin ever entered the world. I remember the original design of mankind. I remember what man and woman looked like and what they acted like and the joy and the deep satisfaction and the goodness and the mercy that they experienced long before sin ever fractured them. And Jesus says, I want to buy your house and I want to move into your house in the shape that it's in because if I never move in, then you can never become what I originally designed you to be. If I don't move into a broken house, then there'll never be a beautiful house. And he wants to move into your house. He wants to move into the broken mess of your life. And he wants to be with you in it. The question is not whether he wants to be there. The question is whether you're willing to let him in. Listen to me. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about sanctification too. Some of us need to be reminded of that big church word, sanctification. Because when we tell Jesus, yes, you have access to me. I want you to dwell with me. I want you to be with me. Not only does he bring us through the adversities of our life, but listen to me, when he moves in, he's not a guest, he's a resident. And when you reside in a house, you're gonna knock some walls out, you're gonna paint some stuff, you're gonna take all the decorations down and redecorate, you might even pull carpet up and put laminate down, you're gonna change that house to suit who you are. And Jesus says, I'm not looking to come into your house so that I can look around the way you decorated it, I've seen how good a job you can do, I'm coming into your house to remake it like it's supposed to be, I'm coming into your house to reframe it, I'm coming into your house to shore up the foundations, I'm coming into your house to rebuild some walls where there need to be some walls, I'm coming into your house to cook some stuff and set the table because you haven't eaten a good meal in a long time, I'm coming into your 
your house because you can't be blessed when you're the one running your house. You can only be blessed when I'm the one running your house. And I want to be there as it is, but I refuse to leave it that way when I get there. I'm going to sanctify it. I'm going to set it apart. I'm going to make it beautiful. I'm going to let it be filled with love and mercy and grace. I'm going to do the things that it could not have had done if I had never showed up. He wants to be in your house. Most of us like our house just like we like it and we think he's okay at the door. Laodicean church felt that way too in Revelation. And he said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He said, you gonna let me in? Because if you do, you're not just letting in a guest, you're letting in a general contractor. Joseph lived his life in a way that allowed God to be the general contractor of the house of his soul. And so God shaped him and molded him through adversity, through trial, through struggle, through difficulty. God shaped and molded him and taught him how to live so that the the problems of Joseph began to reveal the purpose of Joseph by the end of his story. But that doesn't happen unless God is with us. I love you, and you're either going to love me or hate me. Would you turn to Psalm 124? And I'm okay either way. I'm still going to love you. I am. Pick up your rocks. I'm going to love you. Not that any of you have. You've all been really great, and I thank you for that. I want you to look at what David says here. God has called me this morning to convince you of something, and so I'm going to do my dead level best to do it. I don't always get argumentative, but when I do, I'm a bear. Start in verse 2, Psalm 124. David said this, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. David said, if God hadn't been there, if God hadn't been present, if God hadn't been with us, if God wasn't the one that was present in our life, here's what he says. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, When people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. And the snare is broken and we have now escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. He thought I was worth saving. So he showed up in my life. He thought I was worth saving. David said, I have been through battles. David said, in there were moments, there were moments in my life when I believed fully that my adversaries were gonna become my overlords. But the Lord was with us. But the Lord was with us. If it hadn't been the Lord who was there on our side, listen to the positional nature of that statement. He says, if you draw a line and everything that comes against us is on one side of that line and we are on the other side, guess which side of the line God's on? He's on our side. And that makes all the difference. 
The floods would have become their graves had the Lord not been on their sides. The raging storms would have backed them down had the Lord not been on their side. They would have been surrounded without a savior had the Lord not been on their side. They would have been the hunted without hope had the Lord not been on their side. But now because God is on your side, say it, God's on my side. If you're saved and if you're not, then this very morning, the beauty of the gospel is that you can trans transfer your keys, the keys to your life into his hands, and he can become not only the savior of your life, but the Lord of your life, the source of beauty in your life, the source of peace in your life. If you don't know him this morning, this is your morning to know him. You're not here by accident. I'm not shouting at these people for no reason, all right? God is good, and I just get excited when I talk about him. Do you hear me? And so if you don't know him or if you haven't known him for quite some time, this is your moment. If you're online and you're watching this right now and you're wondering why in the world would I go there, this is why you would come here because we want you to know Jesus. And that makes all the difference in your life because when he's with you, things change. When he's with you, you become victorious. When he's with you, you become free. When he's with you, you have a way of escape. When he's with you, you have the unfailing help of the presence of God in your life. David said, I couldn't have made it. It's not because I'm strong. It's not because I know how to use a sling. You see what he did in the valley with Goliath? He invokes the name of God. He says, you come against me with a spear and a sword. You come against me conventionally. You come against me because you thought we were gonna fight. I'm just coming to you under the banner of the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you that if he can't win the fight, then I sure can't win it. So I'm just gonna stand underneath his name and let him do the work that I can't do on my own. Because the Lord was with him. Every enemy becomes a defeated foe. So he's with us and he's working. Genesis 50, 20. Genesis 50, 20. This point's shorter. I guess. See, because Joseph knew God was with him, what we see at the end of Joseph's life reveals the perspective that the presence of God provides. There is a perspective that the presence of God provides. And we see that in Genesis 50, 20. So to set this up, Joseph's father, Jacob, dies. And his brothers now get worried because they figured that it was just because Jacob was alive that was the only reason that Joseph wasn't going to kill them, have them put to death because they remembered and they knew he remembered all the mess they put him through when he was 17. And Joseph looks at his brothers and he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, when you believe that the presence of God is with you, the perspective that you gain is different than the perspective that you have when you're not paying attention to the presence of God. Max Lucado called this 50-20 vision in a book I'd read years and years ago. So we assume that 20-20 vision, you know, that's what we're, we've been told is perfect vision. I remember kids in school used to talk about having like 10-20 vision. I don't even know what that means, okay? I don't know what is better than perfect. I don't know if they can see like gnats slower. I don't know what that means. But 2020 vision is, is the goal. I have something way far from that. I wear contacts and glasses. I can't see anything. 
without any of that corrective stuff going on. But Lucado talked about this idea that, that we're 2020 vision allows us to see what's in front of us. 50-20 vision allows us to see what's beyond what's in front of us. And so it provides a perspective on life that we did not have without understanding that God was with us in that moment. See, some of us see the things that are happening to us and we see the adversity that's come against us and we see the struggle, we see the confusion. Some of y'all got questions. It's not that life's beating you to death, it's just you don't know what to do. 2020 vision sees that knows the confusion, knows the difficulty, knows the struggle, but 50-20 vision says, but I also know the God who's sovereign over every moment, the one that I'm in and the one that I'm going to be in. And so I trust that what he is doing in my life is gonna make sense by the end of it. And so Joseph looks at his brothers and says, y'all meant this for evil. And I didn't know what was going on in the beginning, but I trusted that God was with me. And so I just assumed that by the end of the story, I'd be able to look back at what was going on and I would know that he'd been all over the middle of everything that I was walking through. And he actually had a purpose for it that I couldn't see yet. And so I trusted his vision instead of believing in mine. See, when you know the presence of God is with you, you assume that God is working for you because you come to know who God is in his character. Church, if we keep looking at what's in front of us and assuming that we can make spiritually wise decisions, then we've lost already. If you keep looking at information and trying to analyze it and catch all the angles so you can make wise decisions because you've got 20-20 vision. Can I tell you what God did, I think, last year? I heard it all over the place in December of 2019. It's 2020, it's the year of vision. God's gonna give us clarity. How'd that work out? Three months into it, we were all sitting at our homes getting angry with each other because we couldn't leave. Maybe God gave us more vision than we thought we had. Maybe God gave us vision we didn't want. 2020 vision will allow you to assess a situation. 5020 vision will allow you to see what the sovereign Lord can do with that situation. Those are different things. Joseph said, Because I knew he was with me, I believed he was working. The bookends of his story. God is with you and God is working. I want you to hear that this morning. God is with you and God is working. In places that you didn't assume that he was working, God is working. In places where you couldn't see him working, God is working. You remember the song? Even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. This, this is the truth of, Jacob's, of Joseph's life. Excuse me. Joseph says, even when I didn't understand it, when I was in Potiphar's house serving him as a slave, God was working out something. Even when I was running from the temptation in that same house because I'd done nothing wrong, God was working. When I got thrown in jail because my socioeconomic status didn't allow me to have a voice in that culture, God was working. When my boy who went up to Pharaoh's house forgot my name even after I interpreted his dream, God was working. When I had to spend 13 years in slavery before God brought me out and gave me victory, I knew he was working because I knew he was with me. If you can believe that he's with you, then you'll believe that he's working. And if you believe that he's working, then there is nothing that can stand against you. There is nothing that can bring you down because when God is on your side. Your adversary cannot defeat you. You are the only one who can defeat you when God is on your side. And Joseph said, I refuse to believe the reports of everything that's going on around me. Instead, I choose to believe that the presence of the Lord is in this place. Even if I don't see it, he's working out a story that I'm going to tell the world and it's going to be beautiful.
I want you to look at this from one more angle and then I'm gonna pray, I think. We assume that Genesis 50, 20 is for Joseph's benefit. Joseph needed that. Joseph needed to understand that in the middle of slavery, in the middle of prison, for nearly a decade and a half, that what was meant for evil was being worked for good. And Joseph did need that, but can I tell you something? How much of a relief is it to his brothers to hear that statement? They're the ones that worked the evil. They're the ones that made the mistakes. They're the ones that did it wrong. Can I tell you the gospel is not just for Joseph's? It's for all the rest of us morons that get it wrong all the time. I wrote this down and I like this. God will use your stupidity to create your salvation. That's my layman's interpretation of Genesis 50, 20. God will use your stupidity to create your salvation. I read this story, this is a preacher story, so I guarantee you it's not true. The ship was wrecked and the only, only survivor washed up on a small uninhabited island. He was exhausted. He began to cry out to God to save him. He got no answer from the sky. He was there for a couple days and realized he might be there for a while, so he built a rough-looking sort of hut, put the few articles that had washed up on shore inside that hut, continued every day to scan the horizon. One night, he managed to build a little makeshift fire in front of that hut. He kept the fire burning. He kept feeding it with leaves and sticks that he had gathered, and he went out looking for something to eat that next day. When he came back, the hut that he had built, that he had taken so much pride in, was on fire because the wind had blown the fire from his little fire pit into the little hut, and it had set it ablaze. And he walks back up onto the shore of that island, and he looks at his little hut that is on fire. He looks up at the sky. He falls down on his knees. He says, God, what in the world are you doing to me? And he sat there, sat there in the wreckage of the shelter that he had tried to build. He fell asleep on the sand that night. And in the morning, he was awakened by the sounds of shouting. A ship had come near the shoreline of that island. And they were calling out to him, wondering if he was dead because he was laying on the beach. He was roused and he looked up and he, he started to wave his arms wildly. And so they sent a small boat over to the shore to get him. They brought him in. They, they got him wrapped up and they gave him some water and they started to give him some food. And, and he asked him, he said, how in the world did you know I was here? And they replied, well, we saw your smoke signal. See, it's a preacher story. God saw the wickedness of Joseph's brothers about 15, 16, 17 years before they would experience the salvation. But God said, even in your wickedness, I'm working out salvation for you. Yeah. See, some of y'all identify better with his brothers than you do with Joseph. You haven't lived a life of integrity. You haven't lived a life of perfection. And can I tell you what? That's the very gospel of the New Testament because Jesus showed up as Joseph. Jesus showed up as a man of integrity. Jesus showed up as a man who did it right even when the circumstances were against him and his own people had him crucified. But had they not, 
Had God not allowed them to do what they did, then salvation could never have come for the entire world. Can I tell you there's hope and there's restoration and there's healing for you no matter who you've been or where you've gone or what you've done because in your stupidity, God can work out your salvation. Donna, would you please come play? The Spirit of God is creating something in some of your hearts. I believe that with all my, with all my soul right now. Some of you who have felt inadequate, you felt unworthy, you felt too broken, you felt like you're not a house that God would ever want to come into. I'm just here to rebuke that in the name of Jesus, to bind that lie and to tell you that Jesus wants you just as you are. He loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. Before we ever get into the life of Joseph, what we see is this. The only way Joseph makes it is because God was with him and God was working. And the only reason his brothers make it is because God was with Joseph and God was working. There's beauty in this, right? So this morning, as, as we come near the end, I told you this is raw. This is all just sort of stuff that God poured into me and I did my best here. And, and I said what I needed to say. So I'm not, there's no apologies. I'm taking anything back. I believe God wanted you to hear that. I do. Some of y'all are gonna walk out and think, I, I don't know about that one. Okay, you can say that if you want to, but God's talking to you. Not just me. That's, that's the truth of his word. That's the word he gave to me, so I'm gonna be, be faithful and obedient because I'm responsible for me. Some of y'all need to let that sink. Because that gap gets stuck here and it doesn't make it to here, so it doesn't actually change you. It, it lodges in your brain and your brain just clasps around it and won't let it fall into your heart. Would you stand with me this morning, please? Hmm. Stephen said that about Joseph in Acts chapter 7. The Bible tells us that in the crowd holding coats that day was a guy named Saul. Saul would become the greatest apostle in the New Testament. He would become the apostle Paul. It was that day that he heard the story, not just of Joseph, but of Joseph's brothers again, that God was with Joseph. It was in that moment that Paul heard that that word that maybe would echo in his ears when he was on the road to Damascus a few chapters later, when God would slap him down in the middle of the road and say, why have you been doing it wrong so long? Why is it that you have not loved me? Why is it that you're persecuting me? Why are you coming against me? And you know what he tells Paul? He tells Saul at the time, he says, Saul, why is it that you're acting more like Joseph's brothers than you are Joseph? But then he's gonna tell him, there's grace for Joseph's brothers too. 
There's grace for those who have persecuted me. There's grace for those who have rejected me. There's grace for those who have walked away from me. There's grace for those who have not pursued me. There's grace for those who feel like their life is a failure. There's grace for those who can't quite get over the hump with the addiction that they're facing. There's grace for those who know that they're living in a pattern of life that is not healthy to them, but they can't walk away from it. There's grace for those who keep on seeing things, intentionally looking at things that are going to poison their minds. There's grace for those who keep on saying things in a tone and in a way that destroys relationships instead of builds them up. There's grace for you in the worst moment of your life, because even if you're Joseph's brother's There is grace for you because what we meant for evil and what we meant for bad and what we did that was against the alignment of God, what we did that worked against the creative nature of God, God can take that somehow. He can take the ingredients that were poisoned, mix them up with his blood and his righteousness and create a balm that can bring healing to any part of your life. I don't care if you're Joseph or his brothers. God said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not you, not your righteousness, not your love, not your mindset, not your intelligence, but me. It is not by avoiding evil that we are saved. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not by being perfect that we are saved. It is by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not that you had to do it right yesterday morning. It is by grace that you are saved by faith. It's not that you couldn't walk away for 15 years and just show back up. Yes, you can, because it's not by your walking away or your walking back that we are saved. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. So that you don't get the credit for it. And so that I don't get the credit for it. But so we all gather around the throne of God and say, you are the one. You are the one who is with me. You are the one. You are the one who was on my side. And you were the one who fought my adversaries. And you were the one who stood up against the cancer. And you were the one that helped me pray for my kid when they were running off the rails. And you were the one who broke the addiction in my life. And you were the one who came in the middle of the night when nobody else would show up. It wasn't by me. It was by you. It was by your grace. It was because you were on my side that everything changed in my life. That's where victory comes from by you getting it right because he got it right and you let him come live in your house so that you become transformed by his grace and power.